Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm privileged to share with you today insights into a critical component of any organization's security response planning, especially today. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. I mean, let's face it, incidents happen. Responding to incidents is part of your job, and you have two primary objectives. One, ensure your organization recovers, and two, ensure your career recovers. Uh, this episode will cover a methodology for building your incident response plan, and if you already have one, suggestions for evaluating whether it's going to meet the challenge. This is core CISO knowledge, and an episode you should consider sharing with your team. But first, a word from our sponsor. If your team is starting to use infrastructure as code languages like Terraform and you want to automate security, take a look at CloudRail. It's GitOps friendly and integrates with all your native CI tools. And you can onboard your cloud account to get visibility into configuration drifts between your infrastructure as code and your live infrastructure. Try CloudRail out for free at indeni.com slash CISO tradecraft. That's I-N-D-E-N-I.com. Today, we're going to share with you 10 Secrets to Developing a Fantastic Incident Response Plan. Now, the tips we're talking about are taken from the Public Power Cyber Incident Response Playbook. And there's a link to that in our show description. And in addition, another excellent reference is NIST Special Publication 800-TAC-61, Rev2, Computer Security Incident Handling Guide, which has recommendations that go far beyond requirements only for federal systems, and therefore it's a great all-purpose reference for this. Back to the public power uh, playbook, uh, it's designed to provide, quote, step-by-step -step guidance for small to mid-sized public power utilities to help them prepare a cyber incident response plan, prioritize their actions, and engage the right people during cyber incident response and coordinate messaging. Now, before you say, wait, stop, I'm not a power utility, but if you're smaller, mid-sized, uh, then there's still probably something that's of great value for you here. And even for larger organizations, you might find some snippets. So please continue to listen on because I think you're going to gain some great insight onto this. It's not just industry specific. One of the things we often find as CISOs is that there's a lot of information available to us out there if we just are willing to go ahead and, and take a look for it. Sometimes it's very industry specific and sometimes it's more general across a lot of our responsibilities as a CISO. In this particular case, I think we've been able to take something specific and generalize it and find that there's an awful lot of things that'll work in your own organization. Now, this kind of goes without saying is that the best incident response plan is to have, well, no incidents. And if you remember the NIST cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, the better we are at prevent, the less work we have to do at respond and recover. Let's take a look at the phases of cyber incident response. Did we talk about preparation? That's development of your incident response plan, kind of what we're talking about now, and procedures for the remainder of all these other phases. It also means working out all the relationships you have. We'll get into some more detail in this in terms of being able to get the right people identified, get roles and responsibilities established, getting the authorities, etc. Number two, detection, investigation, and analysis. This includes some procedures for alerting and detecting, escalation, declaration of a cyber incident, incident classification and prioritization, 
and investigation of the incident. Of course, we're going to get into a lot more detail on these right now, so we're just going to right now kind of walk through the sequence. The next phase, then containment. And note that containment comes before eradication. As I said before, C before E when it comes after uh, I. When you identify that there's an incident, then we want to make sure that we contain before we eradicate. Uh, containment was going to be, well, of course, once we've decided there's something there, we have to activate our cyber incident response team, conduct the initial containment actions, document the incident, establish procedures for evidence gathering and handling, and then conduct the required incident reporting. Once that's done, we can go on to eradication, which means developing response solutions, assessing our resource needs, engaging external resources and response organizations, and then following a response plan to eradicate the threat. And finally, of course, is recovery, which includes restoring the system to full operation and verifying that mitigation actors are effective. It's also going to include reviewing response actions, documenting lessons learned, and updating the plan. Okay, so now that we know the general model, let's look at some ways we can really improve our CISO tradecraft. The big thing here is to change a process and establish a process and make it better for everyone. And if you're able to instantiate this process and have it within your core culture, even if some people leave the company, the best practices will remain. So let's take a look at these top 10 steps. Number one, establish a cyber incident response team. Now your cyber incident response team is gonna have, of course, your first responders. Those are gonna be the incident manager and the staff to investigate and declare an incident. When you establish these teams, there's a couple of things. One is, of course, identifying the individuals by name. And secondly, is ensuring that people are willing and able to do this. Because as a lot of us who've worked incidents in the past know, they tend to occur on Friday afternoons or two in the morning. For the most part, they're never convenient. They don't happen after you've sat down, you've cleared your email, you get your cup of coffee, you go, okay, fine, wow, I got a little bit of time on my hands. Hmm, I guess like it's a good time to do an incident. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen that way. Your first responders need to be able to respond fairly quickly. And as a result, these are the people that are going to snap into action. Also consider a CERT Computer Incident Response Team Steering Committee. That's going to have your CISO, you perhaps, or if that's a job you're aiming for, general counsel or a designee. The job there is to confirm the declaration. See, the first responders are going to go out there and be able to make an initial assessment saying, hey, I think we have an incident. Now we have an entirely different element here if we're talking about a SOC and having all these functions established, but here we're just kind of narrowing it down to the incident response team. And uh, oversee the investigation and reporting, and also that steering committee is going to take care of reporting, either to the C-suite or the board of directors, if it's significant enough to go there. Typically, our technical responders, our experts in knowing what to do, are not always the best versed in being able to communicate effectively with senior executives. And, and we've talked about that in the past, about the importance of focusing on things such as risk and overall uh, organizational objectives, and not so much on the technical minutia and details. Uh, that's not going to help people understand if that's not their area of expertise. And also as part of establishing your team, determine who else needs to be part of it. Most likely legal. There are going to be situations you need to wonder, are we allowed to do this, yes or no? And more importantly, can we get some legal opinion on, has the law been broken? Are we in a situation where 
we have to concern ourselves with certain aspects of different laws, different jurisdictions maybe, uh, if it has to do with personal information. Is this a EU citizen? And then therefore, does GDPR apply? Things such as that. Public affairs. There's probably a temptation for people to want to talk to the press. Hey, mom, look, I'm on the five o'clock news. Well, as you've probably figured out, and, and this is by no means a dig at the media, but the media is not there to be your friend. They're there fundamentally because they're in business and they need to sell advertising. But you sell advertising, you get listeners based upon content. And sometimes content is going to be something that says, wow, there's a lot of good facts in there. It's kind of what we're trying to do here, but I don't really consider myself media. And there's others who try to go ahead and you know, create enough sensationalism to get people to pay attention. I mean, Moscow in flames, missiles headed toward New York, details at 11. And you got to stay tuned for that. What we want to do then is figure out if we're going to do public affairs is have two elements. One is have somebody who understands how to talk to the press. And that means being able to provide accurate information at the pace it makes sense to provide it. Recognizing that it's sort of embarrassing if you get up there and say no comment or et cetera, or uh, we don't know, I have no idea. Those things sound bad. And what you want to do is be able to ensure that the flow of information is accurate, but also it doesn't tend to force your hand a little bit or box you into a corner. I've done public affairs training and there are certain things that you tend to do and not do. And so the real thing that you want to do is ensure that your staff says, look, if something happens, don't talk to the press. Don't talk to the news media. Don't talk to the TVs. Don't talk to any TVs. Don't talk to the reporters. Somebody sends you an email, you get a phone call, get you a text, however they're going to contact you. The proper response should always be, please check with the public affairs department for that type of information. But wait, you're right there. Please check with the public affairs department for that type of information. But but can you tell me a little bit something? Please check. You starting to get the idea? You are boring. You're so boring. They're never going to play that on the air. It's not like you're being evasive. It's not like you're avoiding the question. You're just stating a fact. Please contact their public affairs. That's their policy. And then at that point in time, if this reporter is unwilling to talk to public affairs, then my thought is he may not be interested in actually reporting what's true. So everybody needs to resist the urge to go talk. And this is part of the training and understanding up front is that if you're working as part of this team, if you're a first responder, then focus on your job and then let somebody else focus on their job, which is going to have to be the PR. Of course, an IT response team being able to uh, declare what happens with respect to being able to get our systems up and running. Now, there's one thing to go ahead and be able to identify and stop an attack. It's another thing to be able to restore. Uh, my son is a red teamer. He loves to go ahead and do that type of work. He's got a couple of sand certs and loves the red teaming stuff. He's quite good at it. But there's been time to times where I've got contracts where I'm working as a uh, virtual CISO for a client and said, hey, we need to build something. And in that case, he's like, well, I don't really want to learn how to build something. I just like to learn how to break things. Well, in, you know, in all defense to his approach, he's staying focused in his career. And there's enough out there in cybersecurity that if you try to do a little bit of everything, you don't do anything well. So I'll give him that. But also it suggests that your incident responders, the people who are going to be really good at hunting down where the problems are, may not be the people to go ahead and reconfigure your Azure Active Directory and, and get everything reset up. So you don't have a response team who knows what they're doing there.
HR, one of the assessments there, of course, these days is looking at the content of information that may have been compromised or altered or deleted to be able to ensure, are there any issues that revolve around that, which then, of course, couples with legal. And then ultimately, if it turns out that the whodunit kind of points internally, definitely HR is going to get involved. And then lastly, finance, being able to figure out there's going to be some financial effect here, particularly in events of things such as ransomware. And as we've all heard about recently, there's a pretty massive payouts that have gone out the door. And we can't always depend upon the FBI being able to claw back some of that money, because at least as far as reports that I have read so far, when we look at the Colonial Pipeline, it appears that some of those funds were left in a wallet at a public exchange uh, or private exchange, which was domiciled in the United States of America and therefore subject to U.S. court action. Okay, yeah, it's like robbing a bank and then going next door to the other bank and saying, I'd like to open up an account, please. I have a whole bunch of cash. Can I deposit it here? Um, anyway, be it as it may, there's going to be potentially a financial impact as to what's going on. Finance needs to know about this stuff, if nothing else, possibly for reporting as well. Now, there's one element here that's really key, and that's to ensure that your team has the necessary authority to act. And this should be established in advance in writing. One of the things that you find then is that absent that written authority, when an incident team says, hey, there's a problem, we need to pull the plug on this, we can need to contain, and it's the last day of the quarter, and the senior vice president of sales is like, absolutely no way you're going to do that. You're going to kill my quarter. I'm going to lose my bonus. You are not pulling that plug. If you've got the authority to act, it is from a more senior level than any individual actor within the organization, you pull out that trump card and you say, nope, I've got a silver bullet and I'm using it. Now, of course, you want to use it wisely. But if we understand what to do, we're good to go. So that's all preparatory work, making sure people understand what's going on. Get your team up and running. Number two, have a 24 by 7 contact list for your response personnel. Now, I remember back in the Navy where we used to have call trees. And for my command, I'd go ahead as a commanding officer, I'd get a call, call my executive officer, call department heads, call division officers, and he would call the senior enlisted, he'd call the folks. And eventually we would get back and say, hey, we got a hold of everybody. I think it was 1999, maybe, maybe 2000. I had a command where I said, by now everybody back then was carrying a cell phone. Cell phones weren't as ubiquitous as they are today, and most of them were pretty straightforward, but by then everybody had text. So I just got a hold of everybody's phone number and I said, I need you to report that. So when we did our semi-annual um, call tree test, they went ahead and said, all right, contact your command. You have 24 hours. And I got back in 15 minutes said, everybody has been reached. Like, sir, there's no way you could do that. They said, yeah, I just sent out a mass text and everybody responded back. Well, we don't do it that way. <laughs> you will in the future again. Uh, and that's, of course, exactly what happens today. We use electronic communication instead of picking up the phone and literally dialing for people. Quick fun story. I had one of the sailors come in the next uh, time, and he said, my wife was yelling at me. He said, we have to pay 10 cents for every text message because the plan ran. Gave him a quarter, said, tell her to keep the change. I wasn't trying to be dismissive, but the point was, is he got to get the job done. Have your 24 by 7 contact list for your response personnel. Don't forget also, in terms of having home number, and work number and cell phone number and perhaps spouse number, et cetera, things such as that. Kids, other ways to get in touch with them 
and not just phone numbers, but emails and uh, perhaps even messenger services, whatever frequencies people guard, so to speak, it's going to be important. Don't forget also law enforcement, whether it's federal agencies, state or local, or any ISACs, sharing organizations and uh, response agencies that would be important. One other thing, don't forget your vendors. I have over my desk a handwritten note that lists all of my key vendors and their points of contact so that if something ever does go wrong from an incident perspective, if I lost everything electronic, I still got the good old-fashioned piece of paper, the EMP-resistant notepad, so to speak, where I have all that information. All right, that's number two. Get your contact list. Number three, compile key documentation of business-critical networks and systems. There's a saying that says the dullest pencil is, is better than the sharpest mind, okay, the best memory in terms of remembering things. So knowing where to find these things are important. If you have a system inventory, do so, or a CMDB, a configuration management database. Know what you've got. Have network diagrams, understanding what's connected to what, and then where are your entry and exit points. Also, it's going to help knowing where you can go ahead and perhaps pull a wire here or there and isolate segments of your network. Make sure you have business continuity plans. The BCP recognizing the overarching requirement to get the organization up and running after an interruption, which will also include things such as disaster recovery plans. And again, this is my philosophy, but the distant difference between an incident and a disaster is that incidents don't involve the families of your employees. Disasters may. Kind of a short definition, but if somebody is worried about getting their family out of Dodge because there is a giant wall of flame coming at you because of the drought or a huge hurricane that's going to go ahead and be a Cat 5 or whatever, and you say, come in and defend the data center, it's like, uh, dude, I'm a single parent with two kids. I'm getting the kids to safety. So ensure that you think about that in terms of who's going on that team. Now that you've got all this documentation, you know everything that's there, make sure you keep it up to date. There's been incidents that I've talked to people where they've found that after lateral movement and intruders have been in their network for a while, that the intruders actually had more accurate network diagrams of the victims because they were relying on old stuff and the bad guys had to figure stuff out as they went. And so from that perspective, make sure you know what's connected to where. Again, it's going to be huge when it comes to containment. Number four. Identify your response partners and establish mutual assistance agreements. Hmm. Well, what are we talking about there? You don't want to go ahead and at the time that an incident occurs, start a Google search for incident response organizations. Hey, who's out there who can help us? And then if you were to do that, then you've got to get a hold of a sales rep to get the contracting, things like that. I know there's a lot of organizations that will set up an initial arrangement. I've done this with organizations where I've talked to their sales rep in advance, and I said, hey, do you have a terms and conditions, the TNC, that we can go ahead and work these out through our legal department? Do we get pre-signed non-disclosure agreements with forensic companies, response companies on the books? No one's going to hesitate to sign an NDA prior to negotiating a contract. So that's not a problem. Getting the contract pre-negotiated is huge. And then what comes down from that point is you've got 
A, an understanding of what the rates are going to be. There's none of this. So how much is it worth to you? How much you got? But it's already established. And we can get these agreements checked off by legal. Now, a couple companies, I'm going to leave them nameless, at least one very, very big one, has a program where they'll do all that and they'll set up where you basically buy a use or lose block of time. And that user use block of time costs out at about the five-figure level. And what it basically says is that, look, we will be on call when you need us. And we will pick up the phone and we'll respond. And I said, well, why do I need to pay you? How about I just call you because I've already got the TNC worked out and we'll go from there. He said, because we might be really busy. And you might get a call and say, thank you for calling our Emergency response service, you are number seven in line. Please wait your turn. And you might find out that because you haven't paid up front, that you're not treated as an existing customer. As I would expect, if I were a paying customer, I get head of line privilege. So that's one of the things you need to think about is what's the likelihood that you're going to need early assistance in an incident response? Now, in some cases, when you're rebuilding everything on the back end and the technical services, that could wait a little bit. But in those first few minutes or hours, once you realize that something is going on and you realize you're out of your depth, it's important to get folks there. Also, when you think about that, here's another thing. Look at the sensors and the toolkits that individual vendors are going to use that are going to be able to provide response. For example, if you're already using an EDR tool, endpoint detection and response, that also happens to be the EDR tool that this vendor says, well, this is the one that we would install throughout your organization in the event of an incident. It's like, great, you just got like a plus five in terms of your score because it's already there and we've got telemetry and we probably got weeks of data already there as compared to, well, we'll show up, install our tools, but we can't see what happened until we showed up. So that's a huge thing. And look carefully when you're selecting these agreements and identifying with whom you're going to do a contract. One other bit of uh, advice here. <clears throat> Don't do it directly. Do it to a third-party law firm. Now, I'm not a lawyer. And I don't play one on TV. But one of the things that came out of some prior large visibility, and I hate mentioning names, so I won't, uh, a large bank that had some issues uh, with regard to over 100 million compromised records, is that they had brought in some audit and some be able to do some surveying. And then in court, plaintiffs said, we want to copy of that report. And they said, well, we don't have to give it to you. It's attorney-client privilege. And they go, no, it isn't. It was part of your normal request. That contract predated the incident. And it was set up to go ahead and provide routine scanning, and we want to see it. And the judge said, yea, verily, thou shalt give it to him." As compared to you have an agreement with a external law firm and that external law firm then contracts for this type of a service, at which point it's much more likely to fit under attorney-client privilege and you have much better control of the information. Again, as I've said before, stay out of the courtroom unless you're getting paid by the hour. An expert witness, it's one thing, but otherwise you just don't want to go there. And so in this particular case, you're going to reduce your legal liability significantly by ensuring that any response programs that you have with regard to some of these vendors have been established and developed through your legal department and ideally through a third-party law firm. So go talk to legal about that. Don't miss that point. It's really important. All right, that's number four.
How about number five? Develop a technical response procedures for incident handling that your team can follow. Now, there's a number of different procedures you can have. And like any other playbook, it's really helpful to be able to reach for something and follow the instructions. The last thing you want to do is grab something in an emergency, open up the response manual, and says, draft. Uh, update goes here. I, ah, no, we want to go ahead and make sure that there's something. So here's seven examples of different procedures that we might expect to find in most incident response plans. Number one, one for external media. You get an alert that identifies that somebody plugged in a removable USB or external device. What do you do? Well, I'm not going to tell you what to do because that's kind of beyond the scope of setting up the plan, but you should have some known list of agenda. Now I have, my systems are set up, so I get those alerts and we have a policy, written policy. It says you shall not use external storage devices or USB devices when you plug in. And as a result, what happens if somebody plugs in, I get an alert, somebody gets a phone call. Uh, what's going on? Now, usually you can decide from a policy perspective whether you want to block or alert. But again, that's going to be what you're going to establish in advance. If you have smart technical people who really know what they're doing, you might want to just go ahead and give an alert. If, however, you have some folks, which could include senior executives because they don't always know what to look for, you might want to consider a block. But whatever it is, get it established in advance. The second technical response procedure for incident handling could be attrition. That is to say, you find out that there's brute force techniques and attempts coming in trying to compromise your systems. That is to say, you get an alert saying there's been hundreds or thousands of failed login attempts trying to get in. What do you do? Now, it depends upon what you want to declare as an incident, and then you have to have a threshold. I get a routine, hundreds of attempts logging in to the email accounts or attempts to log into the email accounts of our executive team. And most of them come from Eastern part of Asia and none of them are successful because we have MFA turned on. So without multi-factor authentication, however, you're only as good as a guessable password or a fishable password. But now with the MFA turned on, they're just kind of going through doing password spraying and a combination of solid password policy plus MFA is a pretty excellent defense for that. But again, what do you do when you get this big wall of login attempts trying to come in? You can't lock out every account after three attempts because someone could do a denial of service attempt on your admin account. You do have an admin account, of course, that does not have an associated email, right? <clears throat> All right, number three, a third one, a web app firewall alert showing attacks carried out against your website or web-based application. If your app goes ahead and triggers an alert, what do you do? Do you just, is it in monitor mode? Is it actually in block mode? It depends, of course, how you're going to be running it. But then what's your response? Do you run the risk of taking out your storefront to respond to an incident? Or do you leave the storefront open and you deal with the fact that some bad guys are probably running through the store trying to shoplift? That's a business decision you establish up front. How about email? If you think about it, that's probably one of the more frequent vectors for attack. With respect to email, email utilizes a human attack vector, and it's their people who are going to ultimately either click on attachments and open them, or click through on a link, or maybe even pick up the phone and call a Nigerian prince who's promised them a whole bunch of money, etc. Again, the process of dealing with that is one thing. It's kind of user awareness training. 
but also we need to have a, a established approach when a user reports a phishing attack with a malicious link. Are your people trained to go ahead and say, fish, fish, got it. I get these phishing attacks. In fact, they're, I get them sent to me and I look at it and like, this is just so obvious. Why are you bothering to send it to me as a CISO? And then my immediate thought thereafter is, well done, because I want my people conditioned as a reflex when you see something fishy or strange, just send the CISO a copy. And I'll go back, and most of the time, it's a great catch. This is definitely a fish, and oh, by the way, here's one of the things that are on it. Every now and then, though, it might not be a fish, at which point you can go ahead and provide them the feedback. But again, your procedures should be such that you provide that uh, response from an incident perspective. Is that what happened if someone calls you up and said, uh, I clicked on something, and it went to what looked like a Microsoft. I logged in, but then I realized it really wasn't Microsoft. Okay, they've coughed up your ID and password. What do you do in that situation? Then proceed from there. A fifth type of technical response procedure you might want to have is for impersonation. Something, an attack that inserts a malicious process into something benign, like a rogue access point on company property. I know when they came out with that. Hack5 uh, had the Wi-Fi pineapple for $99. You get those things at hacker conference. I think you can buy them online still. And what they're allowed to do is they basically act as a rogue access point. And from there, you can go ahead and set it up where you can, quote, unquote, do research. Well, that's what they're ostensibly sold for, but we know they could be used for a lot of other purposes. What's your process for that? How about improper usage? A user violates IT policies, for example, installs file sharing software on a company laptop. Now, one of the things that I get alerts for is what people are connecting to and things like that. We lock them all down. I don't want people installing software. So what happens is a lot of the products, like a Zoom, for example, or if you clicked on a, a Cisco GoToMeeting, how do they install when you don't allow people to install? They install in the usage directory. All right, They're not hooking into the C program files if you're on Windows or program files x86. Rather, what they're doing is they're running in user space. And as a result, from that perspective, they don't need the privileges to do so you still want to make sure you have a way to alert on that, and particularly certain things like file sharing software, which we may violate our policies. And lastly, physical loss. What happens if something actually goes out the door or goes out the window? They lost their luggage. They left it in the trunk of their car while they're in getting dinner. It got stolen. Whatever it happens to be, we need to be able to have a process for that. And of course, the first question that I would ask is, was it powered up and logged in? Because if you're using BitLocker or some other hard drive protection and it was shut down correctly and nobody taped a little yellow sticky at the bottom with the password, then you're okay from the perspective of compromise. Now, you might have a denial of service if you haven't been backing up on a regular basis. You, of course, have to replace the laptop, but you don't have a breach. But if you do have a breach, what do you do? So again, think about that from physical flaws. Okay, so those are their first five steps up to this point. One, establish a cyber incident response team. Two, develop a 24 by seven contact list for response personnel. Three, compile key documentation of business critical networks and systems. Four, identify response partners and establish mutual assistance agreements. And five, develop the technical response procedures for incident handling. Number six is to classify the severity of the cyber incident. Not all incidents need to be treated the same. That is to say, we can have different levels, and it's important for us to be able to map to these levels fairly quickly so we understand what is the impact. So here's an example where I could have uh, level zero to five, where at the lowest level, 
It's just a notification of suspicious behavior, right? That's level zero. Hey, something weird happened. Roger that. We'll take a note of that. Level one, suspected security threat or isolated incident with minimal impact, like an unidentified server on your network, and then we find out that some employee had spun something up or successful phishing attempt, but someone called us in and then we gone ahead and changed the credential. So no loss of data. That's level one. Something started happening, but we're able to put a stop to it. Level two, compromise of security to non-critical enterprise business systems. All right. Well, everybody likes to think theirs are important, but they're non-critical business systems and things such as that, uh, that don't affect your ability to either meet statutory reporting requirements, deliver your product or service, or meet your service level agreements to your customers. Level three, compromise or denied availability to a business critical enterprise system. For example, an attempt or an actual success to corrupt or destroy data. All of those have business system IT impacts, all right? But things really get interesting when we get into operational and business impacts. Level four would be compromise of a critical business system that can cause material impact to your organization. Okay, now if I try to compromise a system where I have to worry about perhaps loss of records and they have to do the reporting and then they have to deal with any, it's going to be a legal mess there. And then of course you have to rebuild and deal with the customer fallout and the reputational damage. But then level five, a cyber or cyber physical event that creates material impact to your organization. What I'm thinking there is where you get a business outage from ransomware, for example. We've heard in the press in the last couple months where major organizations have shut down food processing, shut down oil pipelines, shut down fill in the blank because of some cyber event. That's about as bad as it gets. It's impacting the business. It's not an IT issue anymore. And the people that are working those jobs, if you're talking about people in a meatpacking plant or something like that, if you can't operate for a week or two, these people aren't sitting on six months to a year with a spare cash. Some of these people are going payroll to payroll, paycheck to paycheck. And it's a huge impact on the people there. So we want to ensure that that doesn't happen. All right, number seven, moving along, develop a strategic communication procedures. You should have a point of contact established within your cyber incident response team to manage and coordinate the communications, both internal and external. And as I suggested before, get legal counsel involved. Also, legal should review and approve all external communications related to a cyber incident. In the Navy, we used to have what we called a chop chain, where if you had a message that you want to release, the upper corner, we drew sort of a little grid where you'd have the code and then the, the signature and ultimately release. And so, for example, uh, somebody may draft a message, you would send it to me as an ops officer. I would then send it to the executive officer, who would then send it to the commanding officer. The CO would sign it and release it. And then we save that with the signature on it. Now, if it required, for example, a legal officer to take a look at it, we didn't have a legal officer on our ship, but we didn't do messages that required that stuff. But then you would have a spot for legal and then you save it. So then in the future, if there's an issue, you can say, wait, everybody went and they reviewed that correctly. Because there's a privileged nature of communications, think about how legal counsel should be involved in the incident investigation. They should be coupled, closely coupled with some of the activities. Now, 
There's some recommendations that might say legal counsel should direct it. I don't necessarily think that's the best idea personally, but I think they ought to be up there at the decision table for everything. But absolutely, with regard to the comms, they need to approve that. Uh, identify the stakeholders who have to have communication, both internal, like managers, employees, and things like that, board of directors, and also things like externals, stakeholders, government organizations, and of course, ultimately the press. Figure out what type of information the stakeholder needs. Who can provide it? Now, remember an admonition from General George Patton, who said, the first report is always wrong. And his thought there is, is that in the scramble to get people updated information, to let the boss know what's going on, there tends to be a habit to fill in the gaps with what sounds close. And therefore, one of the things to keep in mind, the first report you get is probably wrong. But you need to make action on it anyway. So be willing to update as a CISO your understanding of the situation. And don't just accept as fact the information that comes in in those first few minutes. Go back and get that revalidated. Ensure that communications go out on a need-to-know basis. If you involve media, as I said, have coordinating and prepared points that you have out there. Make sure that you can know what to say. You can confirm the incident and communicate response plans. Uh, or you can report involvement and cooperation with law enforcement. Uh, but don't speculate on the investigation. You can emphasize the company's top priorities, ensuring continued service or restoring our service or whatever it is that we are in the business of doing. Make sure that there's information provided and commit to providing regular updates and manage expectations so that the press and the external parties understand that we are following plans and procedures for incident response and thank people, especially our customers, for their patience. Number eight, have a legal response procedure in addition to seven, which is our strategic communication procedure. From a legal posture, we want to make sure we maintain a chain of custody. All of our documents that are collected, any of the physical evidence, cyber evidence begins with an attestation and a chain of custody such that if this ever does go to court, a clever attorney is not going to be able to argue, hey, you can't use that information because it was out of control for a while. Obviously, somebody planted something into it. So establishing quickly, and of course, it's a whole forensics into that area about the importance of collecting uh, hashes of all the information and storing it uh, in a way that cannot be tampered with. Uh, establish legal hold notice if you need to. Uh, let everybody know. For example, if something's going on, stop deleting emails, stop deleting outbound uh, communications. Those all have to go on hold. Uh, preserve your privilege by retaining some outside experts and direct your documentation uh, or things such as that to include that we are going to ensure that this information is saved. Make sure that you're not ever accused, well, you can always be accused of it, but you're never found guilty of being able to go ahead and suppress or destroy evidence. Uh, seek to limit unauthorized disclosure of sensitive information that might have been disclosed and have some Non-disclosure agreements and information sharing agreements already set up with a third party. They're going to help you. That's just kind of your preparing the battlefield. We're going to potentially retain outside experts. You want to review your insurance policies carefully and contact your insurance providers. You may find out that there's some fine print in there. And there's also been discussion about some insurance companies no longer being willing to pay or contribute toward payment of ransom. You've also got deductibles involved. So ensure that there's a good look at that. Communicate with your service providers, your business partners, uh, figure out what your notification and reporting obligations are, 
if there's anybody who does need to be notified, that that list is established in advance and that checklist has gone through and you keep going until you get through that list. In the event that there are payment cards involved, you can notify consumer reporting agencies potentially or the payment card entities letting organizations, financial organizations know of a potential breach, uh, regulatory agencies, and of course, any follow-up and then dealing potentially with potential litigation or post-incident remediation. And of all that work that we've done there, number nine is obtaining the CEO or the senior executive buy-in and sign-off to approve the contents of the signature forms and the roles and responsibilities and the authorities. And then once we've done all that prep work, number 10, exercise the plan. Train your staff and update your plan regularly. A cyber incident response plan on paper really has little value if the responders don't understand their roles and they don't exercise their response steps regularly, at least once a year, because we're going to fight the way we train. We're going to respond the way that we practice. And if it's been a while since you practiced, you're going to tend to forget what to do. Test a number of different scenarios for your team and check for these uh, impacts and identify possibly gaps in procedures or capabilities. During plan development, conduct some abbreviated exercise. Generate some discussions on the roles, authorities, responses. In between exercises, do some drills. Conduct the drills with small teams of employees and reinforce their roles and maybe identify their training needs as well. And then practice your incident documentation during exercises, including using the actual incident handling forms you prepared, practice preserving forensic images, and accessing and investigating the logs. And then lastly, review and update the incident response plan on an annual basis, especially the contact sheets. They probably may be updated a little bit more frequently and it's part of any post-incident review. Well, let me add number 11, my own little one, which is lessons learned. It's important to capture lessons learned and utilize them. Otherwise, they become lessons lost. You want to review prior incidents to identify how can we improve our existing processes. Kind of a root cause analysis check, as we might have heard kind of the five whys. Why did that happen? Well, because of this. Well, why did that happen? Until ultimately you get to the point where you say, well, that was the real cause of this cascade of events. And then also, if you go ahead and ask the five how, how did this happen? How did this occur? Things like that. It might take the people out of the loop and they feel a little bit less uh, threatened if they're focusing on fixing the process. So we've covered today a whole series of ideas and thoughts on incident response planning. As a CISO, as I said, this is a big deal, something that you're going to need to be on top of. Although we don't want incidents to occur, they are going to happen. It's not a perfect record. And therefore, your success and maybe even your survival in your career is going to be based for how well you do things when, when the bubble goes up and things get really difficult. The more you practice, the more comfortable you'll be in your roles. The more your team has had a chance to go through different scenarios, the less likely they are to panic or make mistakes. You don't want to go ahead and go to general quarters every day and create a, a panic environment, but from time to time, you might want to inject unscheduled drills just to observe how people perform. And again, focus on the positive, get people to say, hey, can we think of better ways we could do this? And rather than trying to get people to blame, oh, you screwed up, or I don't want to admit that I screwed up, create a culture of no fear among your team so that you can better improve what you're doing. And if you're able to do that, you're going to become a much better CISO, and you're going to be better qualified in your skills and tools. 
So thank you very much for your time and attention. As always, glad to have you listening in on CISO Tradecraft. If this has helped to you, drop us a note. Let us know. Follow us on LinkedIn or pass us on to some of your other professional colleagues. This is G. Mark Hardy, and until next time, stay safe out there.